There is a content warning for this episode as it discusses pregnancy loss. Please consider this before you continue to listen. Welcome to Inspirational Tales. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest today is Sidel. In this episode, she openly discusses her fertility journey with us. From initial treatments to the ins and outs of the IVF process, miscarriages, and then ultimately bringing her beautiful daughter home. She also discusses the psychological roller coaster that she and many others in the same position face. If you have ever wondered what it is like to go through IVF, then this is the episode for you. Hi, Sadelle. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So if we jump right in... So you got married in 2015. Can you give us a rundown of what your life was like at that time? Sure. So 2015, life was good. Uh, so we got married 2015. We actually got married in Vanuatu, so that was a bit special. Oh, wow. We had a, a whole um, about 50 family and friends come over with us to have one big celebration. And uh, it was just a really special time, really nice to spend that time with family and friends my partner and I were traveling quite a bit. So in that year, so sort of within the year that we got married, we, well, we went to Vanuatu, we went to South Africa for our honeymoon, we went to Thailand with family and we did a big um, USA and the Caribbean trip just the following year and it started 2016. So yeah, we were busy, loving life, both had full-time jobs. I just completed my master's. Alex was in a good job that he liked as well. So yeah, just thoroughly enjoying ourselves. It was a really good time for us right around when we got married. So were you the sort of couple that wanted to have kids straight away or were you happy to wait? We were happy to wait. So it's not something that we wanted to get married and we wanted to have kids straight away. Like I mentioned, we were, you know, we, we did like to travel. We like to go out and, you know, spend time with our friends and go to the pub. We were doing a lot of that. I don't think we were ready to have kids straight away at that time. And I think particularly, you know, 2015, 2016, and, you know, it, I think it does make a difference. Not a lot of our, you know, friends were having or family were having kids at that time. So not really. It was on the radar, but it wasn't something that we wanted to do straight away. Also, I think it's worth mentioning I was I was young. We were both young. We got married. I was 25, so I still had a few years, I think, before we wanted to settle down. I was at the start of my career. I'd just gotten a really, you know, really good job. Probably wasn't in the headspace to think about having kids and then taking time off and and everything that comes along with that at that particular point in my life. So in 2016, you did see a fertility specialist. Why did you do that? So we had gone overseas. So we'd gone to North America and we had a discussion when we were away or before we went, we went away about, we had the are we going to have a try to have a child conversation? We knew that we might have uh, some difficulties going into that. So after we so after we came back from that holiday, I'd stopped taking the uh, the pill, the oral contraceptive pill. So I'd been in that for a few years. I kind of wanted to see what would happen with you know with my body. Would I have regular periods or a regular cycle, which I never really had as for as long as I can remember. And then I was on the pill for a very long time. So I wanted to see what would happen. Uh, nothing really happened. I was 20, 
six at the time. So towards the end of the year, it would have been maybe what I'm going to say October, November-ish, um, I got a referral for my GP to go see a specialist just to have a chat and see what our options would be. What I sort of wanted to know would my age at the time, so I was 26, almost 27, would that affect our ability? Would it make a difference whether we waited you know, a year or two? I don't think we were particularly ready, but it was definitely something we were considering. And I had a really good chat with her. So she reassured me that I still had time but not that much time as she said and that it was possible but unlikely that we would be able to conceive naturally and just to come back when I was ready so she said let's see how you go for a year or so because that's not going to make any difference whatsoever in terms of success rates so if you come back after a year or when you're ready and then we can have a chat about what the next steps are and I think for me that was really good so really good to just hear that from a specialist and also process it so I was happy that you know we 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 did still have some time and it was something that we were thinking about but probably not ready to do at that particular moment either okay so you went away for about a year Mm -hmm. then what happened so that so end of 2016 was the first appointment and then towards the end of 2017 it was yeah it was about a year uh, I went back to her and Again, she was really good. I really liked having that relationship with her. She said, look, I saw you a year ago. You said you weren't ready. I'm assuming you're ready now. So let's get started. And we started sort of the first steps of fertility treatment, but not quite that IVF yet. We also went to uh, Europe end of 2017. So that kind of was putting us off a little bit to try because we wanted to have that holiday before, I guess, we sort of settled down and had had kids. (laughs) What were the treatments that she suggested? The first thing we tried was using it's a drug used for people with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is what I have, who don't ovulate, which I don't, and the aim of to induce ovulation. So the way it works is you take the drugs for five days and in theory that helps or promotes your body to ovulate. Uh, but this unfortunately wasn't the case for us or for, for my body particularly. I just didn't respond to that that medication. So we tried that for I think it was two or three months in a row. And yeah, it wasn't it just wasn't working. It wasn't it wasn't happening. And then the second thing we tried is also it's called ovulation induction and that involves it's a method that involves daily injections to grow follicles on your ovary which will hopefully release an egg and we had more success with this method so the follicles were growing and you take a another injection which is called a trigger shot to release the egg but the issue with this particular method was we couldn't we just couldn't get the right dosage and what was happening was I either wasn't getting any follicle growth or when we increased it I would get like five follicles which is not the aim because you don't want to carry five babies at the same time, which is what would have happened. So what was the next option? So you've gone through these treatments. What did she suggest next? So then the next suggestion was uh, we can go into uh, the IVF treatment so we can start that because I was responding really well to the ovulation induction and that's actually a really positive sign for IVF. So the point of IVF is to get as many follicles as you can grow. Um, So that was the next logical step. Now, I'm guessing there are quite a few considerations that you needed to think about before you decided to do IVF. Can you talk us through those? Yeah, so I think the main thing is cost. Cost is a huge factor. Um, it's very, very expensive to 
not only have the procedures that you need to get done, but also uh, the medications that come along with that. There might be a couple of hospital stays. Um, we didn't have private or hospital health insurance um, at the time. So, yeah, cost was probably the biggest thing that we need to think about. The other thing was time. Like, how long are we going to do this for? You know, what are our options? What if it doesn't work? Do we keep going until we're successful? What is that? It's, yeah, it was a lot to consider. I think at the time, though, when you're preparing yourself mentally to start this whole IVF process, you come to a point where, you know, we had decided, like, yes, we definitely want to have a family. We definitely want to have kids. And I think we would have just done anything at the time to make that happen. It gets to that point where it's not as easy, you know, as it is for some other for other people who just can have a baby when they choose to have a baby. It was going to take a bit longer and have all these other things that we needed to consider. So, yeah, it got to a point where we probably would have just, yeah, done anything to make it happen. So you decided to start the IVF process? We did. What does that entail? Yep, so IVF, the process. So this was June-ish, 2018. The first thing for IVF in Victoria is actually doing a police check. So you have to do a full oh, really? police criminal background check, like like kind of like what you would do when you start a new job. And while I could understand the need for this and why this process is in place, it was a bit of a kick in the guts because it's mm. like, well, anyone can have a baby, but we are going to, yeah. you know, they're looking at our full non-existent for us, criminal history. But um, <laughs> that took a long time. Like it took quite a few months for that criminal history check to come through. I might be wrong in this, but I do believe they have changed the law recently because uh, other states don't have that provision, but Victoria it still existed. They might have um, abolished that, but, yeah, that, I, might, I might be wrong. So that was the first step. And then after that came back clear, you can start the IVF process. So following this, uh, medication was administered again to grow follicles and because the we knew that we resp- I responded well to the ovulation induction medication, we knew what dosage to start with. So it was kind of, I guess, took away that sort of playing around or trying to find that right dose. Um, and yeah, with IVF, the aim is to get like as many follicles as possible. So with this medication, I was lucky. I had quite a few growing on both sides, so both, both ovaries. I think the total was um, 26 or 30. It was quite a lot. So what happens as the follicles are growing, you have regular scans uh, to see, just check the growth of the follicles. Then they give you a injection to take to release or open the eggs that are, that are in those follicles. And it's very precise, so you have to take this – injection 12 exactly 12 hours before you go in for your what they call an egg retrieval or an egg collection so we did the the trigger shot and the egg collection in September 2018 I had quite a few follicles which also can be can be a bad thing so I was on watch for a condition called OHSS it can cause bloating it can be quite serious if it's not treated and that happens when you have quite a few follicles taken so after the eggs are retrieved, they get sent to the lab. The eggs then turn into embryos and then the embryos, you have to wait five days. There's a five-day wait to see how many embryos have made it to day five. And then those are the ones that can be frozen. 
And while we had quite a lot of eggs, that had all fertilized. So we had 26 eggs. We had 11 embryos, which is a really good number uh, to begin with. And then four of those 11 made, made it to day five and were able to be frozen. So it was quite a nerve-wracking time in that that five days to sort of see what happens from when you've had your uh you know had your surgery and then um how many embryos are or are viable more often than not if possible you would have a transfer so the embryo we transferred that day five five days after because i had too many and i was on watch for this ohss uh, i had to wait another month before we could do that next step so september was the um a collection and I had my first transfer would have been late October but it is it's, it's hard I think you have this in your timeline you know we have these timelines in our minds and um being told on oh, no, it's, it's you know we had to wait for our police check and we had to wait for the eggs to, to see how many fertilized and we had to wait another month for, for a transfer so it does it does take time and it is quite mentally taxing so after the month you go in then what happens so after so yeah, end of October I had my our first frozen embryo transfer and that is just uh it's a quick takes about two minutes <laughs> um and yeah, it's really quick quick procedure uh and then you have to wait two weeks so there's a two like, same as any person who is trying to get pregnant there's like that two week wait where you see whether the embryo has implanted or not and then yeah you go from there so at that stage i wasn't i wasn't on any medication we were just going to see you know how it went and, and, and if it worked and did it work so that first one we tried did. So I actually had a uh, positive home pregnancy test. It did implant. And the specialists and the, I guess the IVF community is there's a lot of people on the fence. People have either who do home tests and people who don't do home tests. I think for me, I needed to know. I think I don't think I ever was not going to do a home pregnancy test. Why do people not do them? Because it can be a bit of a mind. Yeah, it can play with your mind. Like, you can, and for me as well, you know, you're obsessed. How dark is the line? Is it dark enough? Is it is it there? Is it not there? Is it getting darker? And it just increases your anxiety. Mm-hmm. But in saying that, yeah, I just don't think I could not test. But the main reason they say don't test is because um, of what happened to me. So I was getting a positive pregnancy test for that first transfer. And when I went into get my blood test so the blood test tests for the pregnancy hormone the hcg pregnancy hormone and they want it to be over 150 which it's, that's a good strong number it means it's healthy it's implanted well and my uh, results came back at 16 so oh. while i had positive pregnancy tests and you know as far as i could tell the line was getting darker by all intents and purposes I'm like this has worked and when the nurse called me I remember I was at work which probably not a good idea on my part I knew I was going to call that day as well um <laughs> and she said oh you know it's it's only 16 it doesn't look good and like, I was devastated I think I'd put all of my hopes on this one little embryo to implant which it did and then to come back with that result I just wasn't prepared for it and I was at work and went to my manager who had had known you know the process that we were going through and I just burst into tears and I just cried and cried and cried and she was amazing she was you know go home take as much time as you need uh which was really you know really lovely but just really unexpected so that was our first little embryo and then after that I think in my mind I wanted to be doing something I needed to constantly be trying to do something so what had happened after the blood test that came back with the result of 16 I had another one two days later and 
a good sign of a viable pregnancy is the HCG levels doubling. Um, so by the time I went back, it had gone down to under five. So it was not even, it was never going to work um, at all. So went back to see the specialist and she had said, you know, if you want, we can go again straight away. So I was all for that because, again, I didn't want to waste time. So we did our second transfer would have been late November. So first one was late October, second one was late November. And again, it implanted. We had success. So I was doing my home pregnancy tests again. They were all looking great. I was a bit more cautious this time after what happened the month before. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't so convinced it was going to work. So I had my blood test and it had come back at, I think it was around 40 or 45. So still low, but not not 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had another blood test two days later and it had risen. So again, they want it to double and I think it had just doubled. So it was, it was at about 80 again, which is not great. Like not what they want. They want it to be over 150. Um, and my numbers are still low at 80. And this sort of carried on over the next, every two days I'd go and have a blood test to see what was going, how it was going. Uh, my specialist was kind of, you know, I don't, like the chances I've seen this before Uh, it doesn't look good but I think I was so desperate for this to work I was like no we're going to keep trying we're going to it's you know it's going up it's doing what it's meant to um I was still getting you know very good strong positive pregnancy uh, tests a lot like lines on on the on the pregnancy tests I think we'd gone away for a weekend and I didn't do any tests came back and had another blood test I think the day we came back or the day after and it had jumped so it was it was quite high now high being it was about 350 but because I was so this was maybe 10 days after that first reading and it's not that wasn't high enough uh, again for it to be viable so this went on for a couple of weeks and then my specialist said you know you need to stop taking the medication uh it's not it doesn't look like it's going to be viable which was, again, so heartbreaking. I was so reluctant to stop. I'm like, but what if? Like, what if it works? What if it was just, you know, what if it just implanted late? What if all all the what ifs? But she was, you know, again, really good and said, even if it does work, it's it will probably end in a miscarriage later on rather than now. So we um, made the decision to stop taking the medication that was supporting the pregnancy at the time and wait for a bleed so wait for a miscarriage to come we waited for about a week and nothing happened uh, and then uh, the doctor had said how about we go have a it's called a procedure called a dnc where they clean out any retained tissue or any pregnancy um tissue that might be in inside so we did that just before christmas 2018 the procedure itself was fine under for me it was I was under general anesthetic didn't have any negative effects on me at all yeah went home that night and again it was it was a bit um we were, we were sad but I think it was also we wanted to just keep going keep moving what can we do next but after the DNC procedure we have to wait for that HCG that pregnancy hormone to go back to zero and in my case it took a long time it took about eight and a half weeks and I get I was really frustrated and angry at that I was so you know we're not doing anything why aren't we doing anything and coming off two back-to-back pregnancy losses I think was uh, it was brutal for my mental health for my anxiety I was just like I felt I remember you know I felt sad I was sad all the time I think I just couldn't stop crying I think it was I was not in a good place mentally and I think 
yeah, having those two so close together while I wanted to do that upon reflection, probably should have waited a bit between those two transfers, especially because they both didn't work. Uh, so then again, back to the specialist. And then, um, yeah, we we're talking about what our next steps might be. And what were they? So then I had to wait for the HCG to come back down. During that time, so it was mid to late December when I had the DNC. And at the time, I didn't remember thinking, I'm really glad that we had to have this forced break. We weren't going to do another transfer then. So I had, you know, we had Christmas. I had some time off work. We had family come over. We had, you know, family weddings in that time. And it was just really nice to be able to enjoy all those moments and not worry about what's going on or am I pregnant am I not pregnant what are we doing to get pregnant it was just really nice to have that break up until February so February was I was having weekly blood tests to see how that pregnancy hormone was going and it slowly 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 was reducing and once it got down to zero or under five we could go again so that took yeah that took from December-ish to sort of start a Feb um, until we decided to start again and we had a, a, an appointment with the, with the specialist to say okay well, we've had two losses now and what they do is they grade the embryos and we had so we had four so the two that we use were really good quality embryos so they grade them from A to D and one to five uh, so these ones so five is a really good one so I had a one that was graded a five it was like a five a a and like a four a b so really good quality ones and they didn't stick so the next two that we had was a graded it was a called a three a a so it wasn't as good and I wanted to know what are we going to do how are we going to what are we changing to make this work because what we're doing is not working and the suggestion was to put me on what's, what's called an immune protocol so the specialist had an inkling that my body so we had implantation but that my body would was attacking these embryos and they weren't um that that could have been why they weren't sticking so she had me on a steroid and a blood thinner so the point of these two drugs is to lower my immune response or lower my immunity and give the embryo a chance to stick so prednisolone is just tablets and clexane is injections in the stomach and it is oh it's such a bad drug to take i don't know if they make the needles blunt or it's just painful oh, and, no. and because it's a blood thinner you bruise so i had all like bruises oh. all over the bottom of my stomach there it's one thing i was going to ask with all this medication you've had to take through it all like how hard is that on your body I think a lot of it is hormones, like synthetic hormones. So it's stuff that your body does produce. I didn't have too many side effects. I think I was lucky. I was one of the lucky ones. I probably gained a little bit of weight from all the, the you know, the hormones, but nothing too drastic. But it is difficult doing daily injections. <laughs> you know, and I'm someone who doesn't, like, I don't mind. I don't love needles, but nobody does. But it's not, it's not something that I, I've never really been, um, fearful it's always just been something you have to do but I think now I'm more adverse to needles than I ever was I think I went to get my flu jab the other day and the nurse is like are you okay and I'm like not really like I don't want to do this and she goes are you bad with needles I said, no you know I have got, I've got an IVF baby She's like, you should be fine what's wrong with you <laughs> yeah I think it's it's now I've got more of an aversion to needles now than I ever did but in saying that, the needles that you take for IVF, they're tiny and very thin. It's not like a big immunization syringe that's going into your arm. It's a small, thin needle that doesn't, yeah, doesn't really hurt. 
to be honest. <laughs> but it is, yeah, it's not nice to have to do that. But yeah, these Klexo needles, they were, they were the worst. They still are. Worst needles I think I've ever had to take. But we did. So we did this uh, this immune protocol. Um, and I was also getting progesterone. I had a low progesterone, which also can contribute to pregnancy loss. Um, so I was having pre- progesterone support throughout the first week prior to the embryo transfer and then um, afterwards as well. And that's also a needle uh, that I couldn't do myself. So I had to get the nurse to do it three times a week, which again, you know, scheduling and within work, it's it's hard. So we had our transfer mid-Feb with our little 3AA graded embryo and on this immune protocol. And again, so had positive pregnancy tests through that two weeks period the lines look good again I was like this is exciting but we've been through this twice before I don't know what I don't know what this means and then my blood test I had and I'd learned by now to take the day off work don't go to work the day you have <laughs> getting results and yeah my nurse called back and said hey CG was at 145 which was oh, great wow. so it was a few days before I was going to uh, okay I think you take the Different clinics have different protocols. My clinic's at day 10, so I took it on the day 9. So one day before at 145 was great. Two days later, it was about in the 300, 360. And then two days after that, HCG had skyrocketed to about 1,500. So very different to my last two transfers. Very strong HCG positive results in my system. So I think... um, it was, yeah, it was different. It was it was a different protocol and it worked. It kept rising. We had what they call a viability scan or sometimes a dating scan at about six and a half weeks after the transfer and uh, we saw a heartbeat, which was excellent yeah. news. So they say uh, you know, if you see a heartbeat at six weeks or if the HCG is stronger, then chances of miscarriage is reduced. It's not You're not clear, but it's, it's definitely lower than if there is no heartbeat or yolks like they call this so yeah it was all good all looking good had a little heartbeat and yeah they were they were really happy with how things were going so it was very exciting it was exciting for us but it also wasn't like part of me was this is awesome like I'm excited this is this can actually work but then there's that threat that threat of miscarriage that sort of hangs over your head and it doesn't go away so yeah while I was excited I was still so cautious and like oh like yay but you know, this is probably not going to work. So let's not get your hopes up too high, you know. And I think during that time, just Google, like Google search history, you know, rates of miscarriage and what happens if this and, you know, how common is this? And it just, yeah, it is, it is again, it plays in your mind a lot, both pregnancy after loss and pregnancy after uh, IVF. Like what can possibly go wrong? I need to know what can possibly go wrong so I can stop it from happening, which you can't do, but, you know, at the time that's control what you can't control I guess in this whole process with obviously it's like a roller coaster like mentally is there any help along the way or is if you want to get mental health help you've got to go elsewhere so the IVF clinics all have dedicated fertility counselors and and you have access to that service for as long as you're attached to the IVF clinic I didn't use that service and I probably should have like looking back I think I should have but part of me was so I was just like, you know, I just wanted to do something. As long as I was doing something to achieve that end goal, I think, I don't know, I was going to say I think I felt okay, but I didn't. <laughs> I wasn't okay. But I probably, yeah, I probably didn't need that at that point. 
But then, yeah, I think looking back, it probably would have been something I probably should have engaged with. But it is the option is there, and I think it's so mm. nece- it has to be there uh, because of how taxing this process can be or the process is. You now have a lovely daughter, so it did work this time. Yes, it did work this time. How did your pregnancy go? So pregnancy was hard. It was oh, it was so hard, and a lot of things went. I want to say wrong, but they didn't go wrong. So there was. Like from the start, so six and a half weeks we had our scan, it all went well. About a week later, I started bleeding again, which is terrifying when, um, you know, you've sort of been through that before and it's not a good thing to happen in very early pregnancy. We were away, I think it was a Labor Day long weekend, so it was in March, and we were away um, on the peninsula and I had started bleeding. So I was calling the hospital, calling my specialist, what can I do? Public Being a public holiday, the clinic wasn't open. I managed to speak to someone who said, okay, come in for a scan um, and a blood test and we'll just see what's happening. So I managed to do that the next day. They did a scan and they saw what they call, it sounds scarier than it is, it's called a subchorionic hematoma, which basically meant there was some bleeding on the uterine wall behind, not even near where the baby was at that stage. So uh, very common, very normal just very, very terrifying. So yep. they said, we'll keep an eye on it, but it doesn't look like it's going to cause any problems. You know, so sometimes they can cause miscarriage, but in you know this particular case, it didn't look like it was going that way. So that was scary, but reassuring at the same time. The day we had our scan, our viability scan, so that was again six and a half weeks. We had the scan in the morning, all went well. I'd gone to work that day and I was driving home, had a, quite a long journey home in, in peak hour traffic and I was like oh, I'm, not, I'm not feeling great and I thought I just hadn't I was you know it was so excited from the morning scan and hadn't really had lunch I'm like I haven't eaten anything not feeling so great came home it's the first time I, I threw up from pregnancy or morning sickness which happened at 5 p.m and then that was a like that was I reckon that was the first day of every single day up until maybe 23 weeks oh. I was so sick Really, yeah, if I, I mean, I had medication to help with the nausea and that worked. And if I didn't take that, I just couldn't function. I probably couldn't go to work. I couldn't drive the car without having to stop and <laughs> pull over. Yeah, not, not ideal. And if I wasn't sick, I was feeling sick. So that was quite hard as well, the constant sickness. At 12 weeks, we had a growth scan, so as everybody does at 12 weeks. And we also did a blood test to check to see if there was any chromosomal abnormalities with the baby and blood test came back absolutely clear no issues whatsoever but when we went to the scan little baby was moving around so much and they have to get a reading of the there's a thickness behind the at the back of the baby's neck it's called a nuchal translucency and again there's all these indicators so it has everything has to be within this within you know within this number or within this number or within this measurement and if it's out of those parameters then that can be an indicator that something's wrong so we had a nuchal translucency of about 3.5 millimeters so anything under that is clear and anything over that can be an indication it's actually an indication of down syndrome having a high nuchal translucency so we were told that oh you know it's 3.5 it's on the high side of normal or that's the number that we use to say that things can go wrong but because we'd had our blood test or the chromosomal test to check out the abnormalities and that came back clear it was unlikely that that it was going to be down syndrome so they weren't too concerned about that but then the conversation was well if it's not 
Down syndrome, then it's probably it could be a congenital congenital heart defect. That's another indicator of um, wow. this this high <laughs> reading that we had. So we uh, at the hospital, so we went private. Uh, sorry, we went public through the public hospital system, and we you know we got put in touch with the genetic counselor. They were telling us to do an amniocentesis, which is when they check the amniotic fluid. Um, again, that carries a lot of risk too. Having that test can, you know, has been known to trigger miscarriages and again it was very early on we were at 12 or 13 weeks at this stage I didn't want to do that I wasn't really sure so they came back with okay we'll do a scan at 16 weeks when the heart's a bit bigger I'm all going to check because we're it looks like this is this is the, the way it's heading so we went back at 16 weeks spent 45 minutes in there with the sonographer just looking at baby's heart and trying to find something wrong with it and there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. So that was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a scare and, and a few weeks in between there we were like, all these things indicated to some sort of chromosomal abnormality in the baby. But then from that scan, and again, there was a few things that is going, going again, going public system has its pros and cons. When I was in for that particular scan, there was a lot going on in the um, ultrasound place that I went to at the radiology place, I should say. And when I think there's a, there was a medical emergency in the room next door, so we had three different sonographers come in mm. to look for the same thing, essentially. And I think there was some wires crossed. Anyway, what came out of that scan was that I had had something called polyhydramnios, which is too much amniotic fluid, which is also an indicator of a chromosomal abnormality. So all of these things are pointing towards there's something wrong with this baby. We don't know what, but there's something wrong with her. And had to have a scan again at 20 weeks. So that was again four weeks later to see, check on the amniotic fluid. And the report came back pretty much saying, I don't know why they said polyhydramnios. There's no indication whatsoever <laughs> that there is too much amniotic fluid. But again, you know, another four weeks and you're thinking, oh my God, what's going on? Why is this happening? Yeah. But that was clear as well. So there was nothing wrong, essentially. There's absolutely nothing wrong. One thing that had come up was she has, she had, a dilated kidney so one of her kidneys is smaller than another other and they were just, so we'll just keep an eye on that that's not it's absolutely it's nothing i mean it's common it usually resolves itself you just got to keep an eye on. so that's something that sort of carried through but it wasn't something to be worried about per se so that yeah so that was about up until about 20 weeks just all these things that were you know wrong with wrong with the baby but nothing was actually wrong with her and then i was diagnosed with gestational diabetes which was a bit of a bummer, I think. I I wasn't expecting it. And what made again pros and cons of the public system? <laughs> um, I got they sent me a letter in the mail. I tell you, saying, oh, you, yes. Oh no, <laughs> there was no phone call. So I'm like just opening my mail. It's like, oh, you've got gestational diabetes. <laughs> call this number. I'm like, what? That's interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, not the best <laughs> best system to to you know let someone know of something like that. But that yeah, that, so that was a bit of a kick in the guts. But it was manageable. That um the the gestational diabetes didn't really you know it didn't affect me uh, negatively at all. But yeah, despite all of this, like I think I I love being being pregnant. I loved carrying you know my baby inside me. I think going through. What we did to get to pregnancy made me so much more appreciative of actually being pregnant, you know, despite having sick, being sick and having all these things that were occurring, but not, you know, not occurring. And then, you know, being a high risk pregnancy, I had quite a few ultrasounds and scans and it was always, I was always so excited to see the baby on the screen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was just really special. Like, I think it was really, 
it was a, a really nice sort of silver lining to all the things that had happened or yeah what we went through sounds like a massive roller coaster <laughs> what you went yeah, through huge, huge, <laughs> huge roller coaster but even though you know i did have like a, a bit of a rough pregnancy and i was induced so the baby you know we, we had an in- induction for the birth i actually had a really beautiful birth there was like no complications no trauma Uh, everything went exactly as it should have and I think that was that was quite a nice way to finish (laughs) (laughs) a very 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 rough pregnancy but yeah no the birth was was perfect I think it was really yeah it was as it should have been that's fantastic yeah how did you go once you took your daughter home Uh, yeah this was hard (laughs) and I I think I had you know, spend a lot of time and mental energy on becoming pregnant, achieving pregnancy and being pregnant and carrying this baby to term. I didn't actually consider, you know, what it was like bringing the baby home. And I also think that was, that had a lot to do with the trauma of, of IVF and the trauma of, of having miscarriages. I don't think not once in my pregnancy I thought I would actually bring a baby home. It was um, just one of those. Oh, really? Yeah, just one of those things, which sounds really horrible and horrific, but that's just where my mindset was. I think yeah. it took me so long. It took both of us, my, my partner and I, both of us so long to actually get the nursery, you know, together. I'm like, because I guess part of me was like, well, what's the point if we're not going to have a baby to, to bring home to put in the nursery? Uh, but we did. We got over those little hurdles. But I think, yeah, not having just, – I just didn't think about it. I didn't think about what it was like bringing, <laughs> bringing Kaya home. The first few days, you know, so hard, very, very anxious. Kai wasn't feeding very well. Uh, she wasn't putting on any weight. And we actually ended up back in hospital, so back in the special care nursery when she was five days old. She had a particularly bad case of jaundice. Um, she was really dehydrated. So she needed some treatment. It's called phototherapy. So she sat under UV lights for a day or so, and it helped a lot. And coming back from hospital the second time I think was a bit of, it was a, a better experience you know at least she had some energy now she was feeding she was not as like sickly as she was the the jaundice makes them really weak so she couldn't really yeah she couldn't feed properly she was sleepy she couldn't you know have to wake her up to, to be fed and things like that but once she sort of got over that a bit it was much better the sleep deprivation I think you can't prepare anybody for what it feels like to have no sleep because Kai was not putting on weight we were doing three hourly feeds around the clock so this alarm was set for three hours so at night I said 12 a.m 3 a.m 6 a.m 9 a.m and then it would take you know an hour to feed her and then she would have to have a top up and then I'd have to pump and then so between the sleep between those three hours for me was 40 minutes to an hour by the time we did all of that and then it was time for the next feed. So it was brutal. It was so hard. You go, you go crazy. Like I think, it, yeah, I can't even describe it. I think a lot of it I've forgotten, like thankfully. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's just so hard to function when you're not sleeping and you have this small, tiny baby that's fully 100% dependent on you for everything um you know there's anxiety about what if she gets sick what if she stops breathing all these things creep into your mind you know and then that on top of the sleep deprivation is it's horrible and I think um 
yeah, it's just hard. You can't prepare for that. I don't think that was that was probably what caught me off guard the most coming home was I didn't think I would ever sleep again. <laughs> it's not a, not a nice feeling. But, no, we had so much support from our family, from our friends. We oh, had, good. you know, food all the time. We had help all the time. Both of our families were amazing. My mother-in-law, my sister-in-laws particularly – you know, just so supportive and so helpful, could ask any question. And my mum and my sister, both nurses, and just really good to have that team around us and supporting us and just, yeah, helping where we needed, where, where we needed help. Did, I mean, <laughs> it didn't really make it easier, but I think it was nice that it was there and we could rely on that for, you know, what, what we needed to. Um, I was lucky, my partner, Alex, he had the first five weeks off as well so he was at home with us yeah which just meant that we could you know it, it was it, we could work as a team there was not just completely on me or completely on him to to do things or get things done it was easier having you know both of us there and it was really nice to spend that time as a little family at home with a new baby getting used to one another yeah and you got through it and I'm sure you're sleeping again now too. We did, yes. I, that's a good, very good point. It didn't last forever. It probably lasted, I think, the first six weeks were really, really hard. Um, and then it started getting better. Like then, you know, I think after, they say after six weeks, the baby starts smiling and it makes everything better. It's not just, you know, it's like, oh, he likes me. I think he likes me now. And what does your life look like now? Now, busy. So <laughs> baby is 20 months, almost 20 months old so chasing her around she's got lots of attitude keeps me on my toes again back to work so when I went back to work when she was 10 months old we are currently building a house it's chaotic <laughs> but it's good so I think being a parent changes you in so many ways like for me my whole worldview has changed and I think it's all in a good way like I'm doing things I never thought I would do for example I was rolling sweet potato and beetroot dough on the bench top the other day trying to make little shapes for you know for Kaya to eat I'm like <laughs> yeah just things that you never you never would consider doing but it's all you know it's all it's all for a good cause and I think yeah our lives are so different so different now to what it was two years ago so much more love so much more joy but you know, there are ups and downs too. It's like there, you know, there are challenges with, I was just talking about the challenges of the newborn stage um, and that was challenging, but there's also challenges, you know, as you go through challenges with sleep and, and toddlerhood and, you know, or everything that comes in, you know, every different stage changes so quickly. Uh, you just get used to one thing and then it changes again. <laughs> but no, life is good and I think, yeah, we're exactly where we're meant to be and it's a nice feeling. Oh, that's great. Why do you think it's important to speak up about fertility and all of this? Because as soon as I asked you if you wanted to come on, you said, yep, straight away. Why is it important to you? I think, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think we, as a society, we're getting better at talking about it. And I do feel that there is still some stigma attached to going through mm-hmm. something like IVF and, you know, and miscarriages. There's, you know, the rule that I, I will say it's an arbitrary rule where you have to wait 12 weeks to announce your pregnancy, which I understand, you know, that there's a lot of vil- validity in that, but it also means if something, you know, untoward was to happen in that first 12 weeks, then 
you're going through it alone. You don't have that yeah. support. You don't have people to uh, to lean on because because you haven't told anyone what what, what you, that you were pregnant in the first place. And I think it's the same with IVF. It's brutal mental and physical journey. Uh, talking about it can you know you can share that load, share that load with with other people by by talking about it. But I do think people. You know, it's something you you want to keep private and you want to keep personal because you don't go telling people when you're trying to have a baby, you know, usually or when you're trying to con- conceive. And I think it comes from that. But the way it can make you feel and, and the anxiety it raises and the sadness that comes along with that, it's sharing that and talking about it, I hope, will help other people who might be going through that, just, you know, th- think about sharing, sharing it and, and talking about it because it, it, it's so important to have that support. So I think the main reason is, yes, the support that I think needs to come along with when you're going through something, anything, anything that's difficult or anything that's that's challenging, it's always nice to have the support of your friends and family. So from going through all of this experience that you've had, what are some things that you've learnt along the way? Uh, yeah, again, good question. I think for me it's the, the control. You can't control anything in life, particularly things that you really want some control over. I would have loved, you know, to choose when we're having a baby and, you know, if we were going to have another one, what the age gap will be and, uh, you know, maybe you pick what month the baby was born in. And it's not an option. You can't, you know, it's you can't control anything. And even when you do have some control over these things, as some people do, it might not work out like that it might things can happen things change but yeah for me the biggest lesson was just learning to relinquish some of that control and and not um you know not getting so tied up in in the timelines and what happens and the what ifs as well but that yeah the control thing is a huge a huge thing and even now like i can <laughs> with i've got a toddler and toddlers uh, weird <laughs> and you know, they, they just I can't control anything and it, it is it's a continuous lesson for me <laughs> so my last question I ask everyone this and it may be the same as what you've just said but we'll see if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be I think it's no, it, it is quite cliched but there's it's a saying it's a, and I think it's a Buddhist saying it's this too shall pass and mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's true for both good and bad things. When you're, you know, in the moment and enjoying things, you know, might be on a holiday, you know that it's going to end. So this this too shall pass. But also, you know, when you're weathering a storm, when something bad is happening, when you're going through something difficult, I think it is also really important to remember that it will pass at some point. It might not be soon. It might not be, you know, within the next month, but it will. It will pass. And I think having that, or knowing that or understanding that as a younger person would have really helped, you know, particularly some of, you know, teenage years and early adulthood, early 20s. It would have been nice to sit down and just reflect on that a bit. But also, yeah, also absolutely for now as well, I think it's really relevant too as we go through different life stages and, you know, for whatever's coming next, something that's, yeah, I like to sort of think about that and just reflect that, it, yeah, whatever we're going through, it's going to change and, yeah, whether that be good or bad. Thank you so much, Sadell, for sharing your story with us today. Um, it's been a pleasure having you here. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could please hit five stars and leave a review or take a screenshot and share it on social media so that we can reach and inspire more people. 
If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any future episodes. And I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of the Inspirational Tales podcast.